Welcome to Lost in the Movies. This episode covers the film Pi by Darren Aronofsky, part of a trilogy of his films that I'll be covering in March and in April. The last episode covered Holy Smoke with guests Em and Steve, who once hosted the Twin Peaks podcast, Sparkwood in 21. That was a great discussion on the Jane Campion film, a companion to uh, my episode on the piano, which I covered in January. My recent work uh, includes the podcast Twin Peaks Cinema. I did an episode on Our Town, part of my small town blues series, talking about these rural communities with uh, dark underbellies, uh, varying degrees of dark. I think this is, you know, the Thornton Wilder play. It's not quite as dark as some of the other films I cover in there, but it still has its drama. On YouTube, I published Twin Peaks Conversations Number 7, an audio podcast with uh, Laura's ghost author, Courtney Stallings, author of this book about Laura Palmer and her impact on the fan community. Really interesting stuff. I cross-posted that publicly on Patreon as well. And uh, on Patreon, exclusive to the $5 a month tier, I had part two of that conversation, where we go beyond her book and, and Lauren start talking about season three and Sarah Palmer, a lot of great stuff there. So if you haven't become a $5 a month patron, definitely consider it. Uh, this is every every month the part two of those conversations goes up exclusive to that tier. That's Lost in the Movies, uh, or rather patreon.com slash lost in the movies. And for a dollar a month patrons, I released episode 88 of the main patron podcast, Twin Peaks Cinema, The Sweet Hereafter, with book and podcast recommendations, plus Twin Peaks reflections on Cliff, Jeffries, Carl, Moe's Motor, Oregon FBI office, uh, Bobby Killed the Guy, the storyline connected to season three, part nine, and uh, our Affliction Archive reading and more. So there was a lot of stuff in that podcast. Last time I'm going to be taking that approach to the Twin Peaks reflections there where I talk about different characters, locations, and storylines. And uh, that that's coming to an end. And also going to at least take a break from doing Twin Peaks Cinema patron exclusives for the time being. So some shifting approach coming there. Uh, for dollar a month patrons, I also opened up the last of the Lost in Twin Peaks episodes that had been exclusive to the top tier, uh, Fire Walk With Me, 12-parter that I did, hours and hours of material now open to all patrons. That'll be coming out for the public uh, in a few months, as will the Sweet Hereafter topic that I discussed there. Um, usually there's a longer gap between the patron episodes and their kind of public debut, but these are both topics I want to cover as well for the 20, the 25th anniversary of the suite hereafter in May and the 30th anniversary of Firewalk with me in May. So I'm going to have both of those going up publicly then, uh, both debuted at Cannes at Cannes Film Festival. So that's why. Uh, on my site, lostinthemovies.com, I continued my Mad Men Season 7 viewing diary through Episode 10, The Forecast, Episode 11, Time and Life, Episode 12, Lost Horizon, and Episode 13, The Milk and Honey Route. Love discussing these episodes. We're getting right up to the finale. That's coming out uh, next Monday. It'll be the conclusion of this viewing diary, my longest ever, covering every episode of Mad Men. Started in 2018, and this was the first time I watched it, so raw reactions to each one. And there's so much to talk about at the end of this particular season, so uh, definitely check those out and stay tuned for the next one. And then I concluded my Olympic film series with three more rounds up, uh, roundups, whatever the plural of roundup is. Uh, these were where I wrote capsules, although they ended up being longer reviews generally. There was so much to say about some of these films and the games because I go into the history of what happened there, even if it's not in the film sometimes. So the fifth roundup, 
covered summer 1964, 60, and 56, and the winter games of 84, 88, 92, and 94. I did a whole Twitter thread showing the fashion of the 1984 Olympics in Sarajevo, just some really fun 80s stuff there that I think a lot of people from former Yugoslav republics uh, enjoyed because uh, from the likes and retweets on that, that seemed to be the case. And then I covered the uh, for the sixth roundup, the Summer Olympics of 1952, 48, and 36. So the Leni Riefenstahl film, Olympia, most notorious and famous and controversial Olympic film of all, with, since it took place in Nazi Germany. And kind of talk about that one. Plus a 1932 bonus and newsreel for a year where they didn't have a film. And uh, the Winter Games of 98, 2002, and 2006. So at this point, getting into Winter Games, I could remember watching. I started watching them in 92. The seventh Olympic roundup, the the last one that just went up uh, last week, covered the Summer Olympics of 1928, 24, and 21, plus like newsreels and just kind of general topics and stuff where they didn't even have newsreels for like 1920 and 1896 to 1908, the earliest summer games. And the Winter Games of 2010, 2014, 2018, and 2022. So I end with coverage of the broadcast in Beijing. And there was a lot of drama to discuss there. It just seems like this was a very eventful, for better and worse, uh, Olympics there. And then, of course, on my site, also put up cross posts for my January and February patron podcasts and uh, the Twin Peaks conversations for February. So there's all of that. Been very busy, but it's going to slow down a lot after this because as I wrap up the Mad Men series, that's uh, pretty much it other than my monthly podcasts for patrons and for the public. And as I mentioned, the patron ones are getting simpler. So uh, there'll be less to discuss uh, going forward, but just wanted to make sure everybody knew about all these things I was up to in February. Now on to Pi, and I should note, stay tuned after the discussion, uh, my, my own discussion, because I also got some interesting listener feedback on this episode uh, as well when I first shared it with patrons. 1245, restate my assumptions. One, mathematics is the language of nature. Two, everything around us can be represented and understood through numbers. Three, if you graph the numbers of any system, patterns emerge. Therefore, there are patterns everywhere in nature. Give your Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism. Insomnia haunts him and he twists and turns in his bed. Maybe that pattern is like the pattern in the stock market. The Torah. This 216 number. This is insanity, Max. Or maybe it's genius. I have to get that number. Hold on. You have to slow down. You're losing it. You only gave us part of the code. Now give us the rest of the code so we can set it right. You are only a vessel from our God. You are carrying a delivery that was meant for us. order, only chaos. Pi was the first feature film of Darren Aronofsky, who's gone on to direct about six or seven other films. He works pretty slowly, sometimes taking five years between movies. He was in his mid to late 20s when he created this film, shot on black and white, reversal, very high contrast stock. It's got a very distinctive look to it. It was very low budget. In fact, at the end credits, among other things, they thank a production angel, a production mensch, and a production profit, so I thought that was kind of funny. The film tells the story of Max, a brilliant mathematician 
who locks himself away in his little apartment in Chinatown and tries to calculate some pattern in the stock market using a computer set that he has, a pretty basic computer set, or at least graphics-wise, it may be uh, highly powered. I, d- I don't know. There's a lot I don't know about the stuff they talk about in this movie. I got by in math, but a lot of the abstraction kind of escapes me. But as he's calculating these patterns or trying to find these patterns, he also comes into contact with a couple different groups. One is associated with, I guess, a brokerage company or something, and she wants to get his services because they want to make money off him, obviously, and he's kind of avoiding her for a while. And then there's another uh, Jewish guy, a Hasidic Jew from uh, the diner, I think, where they're sitting down every morning. He, he runs into him and trying to get him interested in the Torah, the Talmud, and and those texts, and, and talking about how numbers play into it. And it eventually comes out he's a member of this cult, it seems, this uh, mystical cult that may be involved with Kabbalah. And they're interpreting the Torah through numbers and trying to find the 216 number, 216 digit number, I guess I should say, that is actually spelling God's name. And if you enter the temple saying it and you're pure, then uh, the Messianic age will begin. And coincidentally or not, Max ran into a 216-digit uh, number when his computer seemed to melt down, and there were ants crawling on it, some sort of sticky substance, and then later he wants to find it because he realizes, actually, he may be onto something from his mentor, Saul, who he goes over and plays the game Go with, and uh, he told him that at one point he ran into a 216-digit uh, number when he was trying to find pattern in in the number pi, which is, of course, where the film takes its title from. So, you know, it's done as kind of a psychological thriller where there's both the intensity of him trying to figure these things out and pacing around the room and having these seizures where he has cluster headaches. So it's like these intense migraines that take him over. And they're traced back to him looking at the sun when he was a child, staring into the sun until he passed out and uh, the doctors thought he would go blind. And instead, uh, he got his vision back, but he has these intense headaches and he has uh, these perhaps these insights into something else. So he has to take these pills and give himself injections. This is the first of many Aronofsky films I'll be reviewing and you can really see the um, either the roots or just the first expression of what fascinates him in, in many of his films, doing this deep dive into somebody's tormented head. You certainly see a lot of this in the next film in Requiem for a Dream. And this is very much a film of ideas, I think, to the point where the characters and the situations of the story serve those ideas. And sometimes they seem a little bit rote. All of the corporate intrigue where they're chasing him around, he's hiding under cars and jumping around on the subway, getting kidnapped and thrown in cars. Like, it, it works well enough, but it feels a little bit functional to me. This is what he has to do to make the the film he wants to make that's more about this fascination with numbers and the idea that reality is structured and trying to figure that out and trying to reach that almost platonic state through the messiness of human experience, which I think is pretty interesting as well. For now, what mostly interested me was just all of the concepts that the film stirs up. And I actually went on a little bit of a Google Wikipedia jaunt afterwards, looking up some of these concepts. So for example, at the end of the film, he drills a hole in his head. And I didn't quite remember how the film ended. I probably saw it many, many years ago, probably 18 years ago or so, shortly after it came out. I thought he was just killing himself. But then you see him alive, and the next thing I realized, oh, he's like 
panning himself where you drill, I guess, just enough. I'm not sure what the technique is, but you drill just enough into your skull that you don't actually penetrate the brain and, and kill yourself. You just open it up to the air. And there's a whole esoteric history of people doing this, feel like they're gaining more consciousness, but it also can be to remove pressure. It's an actual medical procedure. The film is just full of little things like that. Gometria, which I'm probably mispronouncing, but that's the study of the Torah. I think the Torah and the Talmud uh, for numerical codes, looking at the Hebrew letters. And that's something that's actually explained within the film. The character who's speaking to Max in the diner shows him what various, you know, if you break down various letters into their numerical components, you get things like, you know, mom and dad equal the children. And of course, Max is looking at this and noticing various formulas and, and equations and stuff. And so his interest is sparked in this. And I think I vaguely remembered the film as suggesting that maybe that old canard, maybe it's all in his head and he's paranoid. And I don't think so. I think there's no reason watching this film not to believe that he's on to something big. And eventually when the Hasidic group gets there, hands on him what they're interested in is that this 216 digit number can actually communicate god's presence and he says well it's not the numbers it's the space in between them so to speak which i guess you can you can ponder upon exactly what he's saying there he has these experiences these um, overwhelming seizures and the film does its best to convey that through the style and there's a sense in which that's the substance of the thing and the numbers are just signposts descriptors pointing you in that direction shem haforis another word i can't uh, pronounce perhaps intentionally so because that's supposed to represent the name of god and there are different interpretations of that i don't think any of them are 216 digits uh, he may aronofsky may have brought that in because apparently uh, 666 if you you know, the, the mark of the beast, if you multiply six by six by six, so I guess six to the third power, uh, you supposedly get 216, which I guess makes sense. I'm trying to do the math now in my head. You know, the internet wouldn't lie to me, I'm sure. There's little things like that throughout this movie. That's fun to pick apart. When I work on these podcasts, I try to set around a certain amount of time and hold myself to that. And I can go on a tangent, but it has to be related, like work kind of structured in that sense. And at a certain point, I was off in the thickets of Wikipedia, like finding out about all of Martin Luther's like crazily anti-Semitic writings. I thought, okay, I've wandered a little too far off track here, maybe. And time to sit down and actually record this review. It's a monochromatic film in, in actual photography. It's shot in black and white. But also, I think just in terms of some of the ideas, there's the repose and there's the seizure. There's the study, his study of numbers and trying to break everything down into its its components and then his his social awkwardness there's everything comes in one extreme or the other i discussed eraser head and this is kind of his eraser head in a way where it's starting from a simpler bare bones kind of exploration of the of the themes and the style and everything that he's interested in the most elemental version of that the film is also of a particular moment came out in 98 and this was a time when independent cinema was really thriving. But you were also seeing a lot of films that were very much in the Tarantino mode. Pulp Fiction come out only four years earlier. And it seems like every young director is trying to make a witty, highly verbal, but also stylized with camera movements and cuts and stuff, their own version of Pulp Fiction uh, to varying degrees. So there was a lot of either on the one hand talk fests or on the other hand, super stylized for the sake of being stylized films. So this is interesting coming out in that environment. 
And I think it signifies a uh, push toward a slightly different mode of cinema that was going to be forthcoming. Aronofsky definitely belongs to that generation of filmmakers, Coppola, P.T. Anderson, and Christopher Nolan kind of belongs in that crowd as well in terms of his age and when he was coming out with the films. And to a certain degree, the types of films he's making, they obviously exist on the spectrum. I think with a lot of these filmmakers, the Gen X filmmakers really you see a unique individualized vision, but also kind of a grand scope, which I think was possibly missing from some later generations of filmmakers. And you can see that here. I mean, it's literally a film about somebody who may have the name of God. People want him to summon a messianic era, and he is at the same time being held responsible for crashing the stock market. So even though it's a very simple pared down film in terms of uh, its aesthetic and its cast and everything, the logistics of actually making it, it has these grand ideas at play. But the point is, this is a film that uh, almost feels like a gateway to many other things. Somebody called it once, they were kind of dismissively just, oh, this is his calling card film. He wanted to show what he could do with style and what sort of things he was interested in, but it doesn't have much meaning or significance beyond that. It's just his industry calling card. I wouldn't be that cynical about it uh, at all. Um, and interestingly enough, this wasn't just Aronofsky's vision, but the star of the film, Sean Gillette, also was the co-writer and had a strong hand in creating this film as well, it seems like. And he's had an interesting career after that uh, a project, which incidentally, this is interesting, it's a, it's a project that unites Morocco where he lives with New York. It's like a cultural exchange type of thing. And it's called the 212 Project. Obviously, the area code for New York is 212, but apparently there's also that phone prefix has some connection with Morocco's uh, telephone numbers. I'm, I'm not sure how or where that goes in, if it's for a specific city or the country as a whole or what. That shows you right there, this guy has a keen interest in uh, numbers that he even named his foundation after that. So, so clearly there's a lot of hands at work here. I'd be remiss not to mention a big coincidence too. This is a film which obviously is all about these sort of fleeting conspiratorial connections between things and uh, noting those and are we making too much of them are we not etc well i was already planning to watch this film today i had it on my computer for a while because i had to burn it and send it back at a certain point and you know i'd finished my lynch coverage and it was time for this and by coincidence as i was getting ready to do it i went on google and they had a weird illustration of like food and i was like what's this all about so i clicked on it and it was actually pie. And the reason was because today is Pi Day. It's March 14th, 3.14, play on the never-ending decimal of Pi. And I thought, that's weird. And then even weirder, as I looked at the stories about it, it said Stephen Hawking dies on Pi Day. And I said, what? Stephen Hawking's dead? And I looked, and he died today on Pi Day. And uh, obviously, people were making a big to-do about that. So that was a little eerie. And RIP Stephen Hawking, of course, it's speaking of these connections, and maybe this is the time to cut it off. I noticed, too, because people were saying this, obviously, on Twitter, RIP um, Stephen Hawking on Pi Day. And if you look at RIP, it's Pi R backwards. And of course, Pi equals or pi times r squared equals a circumference. So there you go. I think it's probably time to check out of that. Here's a piece of feedback that I received from a listener about pi and mysterious fiction that they see it as a part of. From Saba, I'm only halfway through the episode, but I already have some feedback regarding the pi review. I have seen this film multiple times, although the last time maybe 10 years ago, and I have fond memories of it. I agree with your viewpoint that the film suggests the protagonist's is on to something big. To me, this film embodies the kind of mystery that draws me to fiction in general. I love fiction that tackles the bigger questions in life, that searches for something that transcends our day-to-day -day reality. 
When engaging with such fictional mysteries, although you know you're watching fiction, you still hope that these works will unveil some greater truth. And thus, while watching Pi, I found myself rooting for the protagonist, hoping he would succeed in reaching his goals, and thus disappointed when he drilled his genius away. Twin Peaks holds the same kind of mystery for me. Twin Peaks also tackles those big questions, the afterlife, the existence of the souls, multiple layers of reality. When watching Twin Peaks, part of me hopes and imagines that Frost and Lynch somehow drew their inspiration from a mutual creative experience where they got a glimpse of the bigger picture. Having watched mysterious fiction for most of my life, I have not discovered any greater truths, but still hoping for it when I engage with a new work. I'm at a time in my life where I consider digging deeper. Although I'm not a spiritual nor a religious person, I attended an info session about transcendental meditation. The time isn't ripe to commit to it now, but I might take the plunge in the future. Kind regards, Saba. Thank you for listening to Lost in the Movies. If you want to share it with others, please consider rating and reviewing and subscribing on Apple Podcasts, best platform to uh, extend its reach. And you can also, of course, become a patron on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. The next episode is going to continue the Darren Aronofsky trend. It's going to come out in late March. Since I have three films to discuss of his, I'm, take, I'm, I'm adding a bonus episode to the usual monthly podcast since there's an extra week in March, might as well, or an extra Wednesday, I should say, in March. Might as well make use of it. So I'm going to play a little uh, preview for that. You can probably guess what it is going from Pi, although these won't just necess- they won't just be his first three films. The third one's actually from a little later, but uh, the first two are his kind of one-two punch. Requiem for a Dream is furiously brilliant. Naturally. A thrilling, stylish, and hypnotic film. I like thinking about the red dress and the television. Now when I get the sun, I smile.